Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. This is David Rovix and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55am, Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at beyondzeroemissions.org. I have James Bramble here with me. He's the coordinator of Energy Freedom. Hi, James. Hi, Vivian. Great to be with you. Thank you. James, tell us your journey. How did you get into this job? This job right now, well, I was working at Beyond Zero Emissions on the Zero Carbon Australia Buildings Plan, and this report shows how Australian buildings can reduce their energy use by half and save thousands of dollars. We can generate tens of thousands of jobs and reduce our reliance on fossil fuels and actually eliminate fossil fuel energy from people's homes. So this report came out in August 2013 and while we were finalising the report we realised that there is a really transformative story in this research and that transforming story is that households, Australian households, can actually retrofit their homes and generate more energy than they use and so that's a term we're calling energy freedom and of course It's no point just having that sitting in a report. We need to get it out there. And so Beyond Zero Emissions partnered with industry and industry associations and now councils to promote this idea of energy freedom. I've uh, spoken to a few of the solar citizens people and they uh, really feel that once you put solar panels on your roof, it sort of politicises you. You suddenly see that this is... A lot of things change as a result of that. Have you found that with energy freedom? Yeah, absolutely. Like the people out there who've started uh, retrofitting their homes, now that might be having solar on their roof or insulating their walls. Uh, They want to maximise their investment, but also they have experienced the benefits and they want to get out there and share this opportunity. And also they get really annoyed reading what's in the papers about you know dodgy star ratings and electricity prices going up and people getting their electricity cancelled and all these types of stories that 
we can change if we have a new strategy and share these ideas. Mm. I think that's true, the dodgy stories and the fact that there's usually quite a bit of money involved. I recently had a water heater that broke down and I wasn't at home. My daughter was there, I was interstate, and she said, the water heater's broken down and I had planned for a long time to get that rusty old thing replaced. It was gas. And in the end, I couldn't because the couple of plumbers I spoke to sort of wouldn't make it easy for me. They kept saying that all the things that the Beyond Zero people had previously told me um, were untrue and they were just wedded to their old paradigm. Mm. So I felt I needed a bit more armour in um, knowing what to say and getting what I wanted, which was a heat pump with electricity boosted. I think that was what your plan advises. I'd read all about it, but I couldn't articulate it when I had the Palama on the line. Can you help me in that situation? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, most Australian homes heat their hot water with gas or uh, just pure electricity and our research clearly shows that there's a new technology called heat pumps and they are able to heat your hot water at a much higher efficiency and can run off 100% renewable energy whether that's your rooftop solar or 100% green power from the grid. So the science is absolutely in on that but um, unfortunately the two plumbers you called we're looking to install their thousandth and tenth gas hot water system, which is what people like to do in their jobs, is repeat what they've been doing. So, yeah, that's a big part of this alliance is to get the facts out there on, you know, like there's just no argument that a new heat pump hot water system will save you money and energy mm. compared to a gas hot water system. The basic science is in. But, uh, yeah, we've got to get it out there and help help people get ready so that when their old technology breaks, they're not facing an immediate urgent decision. They can go, right, let's have a look at what the best one on the market is in my price range and invest in that knowing that I'll have it for 15 years. Yes, I should have done some more preparation. (laughs) Well, I think a lot of the things are uncontroversial, like double glazing on your windows or insulation. I think they're pretty uncontroversial, but gas is not. I had understood from all the years I've been with BZD that gas is a fossil fuel and there's a lot of emissions involved in extracting it and using it. So I was dead against gas, but a lot of people are still going head on for gas. Can you say very clearly to the audience what what BZD has found out about gas. Well, it's expensive, it's polluting and it's inefficient and it's unnecessary. So pick any of those four reasons. Uh, Electrical powered home appliances and technologies hot water, heating and cooling cooking can all be delivered with more efficiency and at zero emissions with electricity so okay well you've heard it from me listeners if you find yourself that everything's broken down and you have to get a new hot water service just try to remember that or look up the website which is what james energyfreedom.com.au thank you thank you i've got richard keach also a researcher at beyond zero emissions in the studio with me tonight good evening richard hi jane Nice to be here. Yeah, good to have you here. So we've just heard James talk a little bit about energy freedom and I think he was also involved in the the, uh, Zero Carbon Energy Buildings Plan report. Is that right? Yeah. 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 
So you both worked on this report, and that report has been published now and is available. Yeah, on the BZE website, and um, that's been out for what since late two thousand twelve. Okay, so that is quite a while. And where have you taken that report, Richard? You, oh, we launched it in Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been widely discussed. Yeah, that was good fun. I was one of the lead authors. Uh, it, it looks at both uh, the whole buildings sector in Australia, residential and non-residential, but mm. um, Energy Freedom spun out of that report and looks specifically at residential. That's right. And just before we move off into um, what homeowners can do to retrofit or build their new homes in terms of energy freedom, um, you're, you're, you're writing a book that's coming yeah, out of Yeah, I was commissioned by Beyond Zero to take uh, the stuff that was done in the buildings plan and, mm. and recast it as something that uh, a homeowner could use as a useful reference mm. in, in applying the lessons of of the buildings plan. Sure, and that's coming out in September, the book. That's the goal. Roughly, so we'll have you back. It's with the uh, publisher at the moment. Before then, yeah, we'll have you back in a couple of months for that, Richard. Good. So looking at what people can do in relation to their own homes, there's a number of en- energy freedom uh, categories that, that you guys have, have coined. But overall, you're looking at uh, homeowners achieving net zero energy use. Yeah. Can you speak to that a little bit, please? Yeah, um, net zero means across the course of a year, we expect mm-hmm. that a reasonable home could uh, reduce their energy consumption by a, a decent amount and then mm-hmm. fully offset that with solar. So by fully offsetting that, that's what net zero means. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there's, I think, nine categories that you talk about in energy freedom. There's, yep. you, do you want to tell us what those are? Yeah, we've broken it down into insulation, windows, lighting, draft proofing, hot water, uh, monitoring and control, heating and cooling, appliances and cooking, and solar power. Right. And and with all of those, uh, that cornucopia of delight to start from, where, mm-hmm. would, a, where would a homeowner start? What, what should they start looking at? Particularly, I suppose, most people have a budget um, and other considerations in mind. Where would First you... thing I'd say is um, if you've got an amount of money, you can throw at this... Um, Look big picture, think long term, and and then roughly divide your budget between the solar power, the generation side of things, and the energy efficiency side of things. Mm. So um, you're going to need to spend. You know, don't, in other words, don't throw all your money into solar and then not have money to improve your home. Mm. So it's about reducing your energy expenditure and increasing your energy production, something along those lines? Absolutely. And and the measures that we propose will pay themselves off mm. uh, in the long term in avoided energy spend. Mm. So um, I mean, you don't look at a renovation in terms of payback period normally, but this is an approach to improving your home and actually achieving a payback and being more comfortable at the same time. Mm. So where, where would I start, Richard, if I was looking at my two-bedroom, uh, small, modest home in, in the country? What would I look at first? I see uh, we've got things like double and triple glazing. Which yeah, probably the first step is actually to get, uh, if you're really approaching this from a point of view of... Systematically. You, you're systematically yeah. and saying, I'm going to go the whole way. Mm. Um, get someone in to have a look. Get a third party to come and give an opinion. 
Um, what sort of third party would you get um, in? There's companies that do energy assessments. Yeah, is that? yeah. You want an, an energy efficiency consultant mm. uh, or someone who's um, able to um, sp- yeah, speak. You know, use the benefit of their opinion in in applying that to, to your home. Mm. Um, uh, I, I did that, and um, I'm now in the position of being on the other side of that, and, and I'm now giving that advice. Mm. Um, and you know, I, I spent some money on that report initially, and it gave me a list of things to do, and, and I've done them and more, and, and now I'm at the point with my place that it, um, it, it pays me. Um, mm. But that's... So you're feeding back into the grid. I'm, I'm feeding back into the grid, and mm. I'm lucky enough to get the premium feeding tariff, mm. which someone starting out today wouldn't get. But uh, on the other hand, they're going to spend a lot less mm. on their solar than I did. Right? Yeah. So because it's come down so much. Yeah. 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 So, um, so right, swings so, and roundabouts there. Yeah. So where did where did you start then? I used a company called EcoMaster, mm. who gave me some very good advice and mm. did some of the, the work to do with glazing and with draft proofing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I've done a lot of the rest myself in terms of insulation and... Um, heating and cooling. Uh, heating and cooling. I used mm. a, a, a commercial contractor mm. to, to put that in. There's nothing exotic about the heating and cooling. Mm. Um, probably one of the most surprising things about the approach to energy freedom that we talk about is... Um, getting rid of mains gas. Um, there is a, a, a there's a myth out there that gas is a clean green fuel, and, and we think otherwise. And mm. uh, in a typical Victorian home, for example, that uses gas for heating and hot water and for cooking, um, you end up using at least fifty in the, in the range fifty to sixty percent of the overall energy used by the home mm. as, as as gas and. And we've able we've been able to get rid of that entirely, so we've reduced our uh, gross energy consumption in the home by about three quarters, mm. um, which is massive. And why why do you say that um, uh, gas isn't the clean green type of fuel that most people think it um, to be? Because a lot of the consequences of gas uh, are upstream from the house. Mm. It, gas burns reasonably cleanly, but uh, in a an appliance that's working properly. Mm. But there's inevitable leakage in the system of pipes and distribution and production and processing that's upstream of the house. Mm-hmm. And the IPCC now reckons that the 20-year global warming potential of methane, which is the main constituent of natural gas, is about 86 times that of carbon dioxide. So you only need a tiny bit of leakage mm. for that to overwhelm the, the total emissions of the burning of the gas. Mm. So it's about in the order of 3%. So if you, in other words, if you get 3% of leakage end-to-end, that 3% uh, has as much emission effect as burning all the gas that comes out of the pipe at the other end, mm. which, is, which is massive. Yeah, um, it's crazy. And, and it swamps the... Mm. Uh, the benefits that people would otherwise imagine. Mm. Okay, so you've you've got someone to come in and do an energy audit of your house. So you've got some advice some, somewhere. What's what's the low hanging fruit that people can jump in? Probably the easiest and quickest one to do is insula- is um, draft proofing. Right, um, it's often overlooked and not a very sexy uh, measure, but it's mm. important, especially in a climate like Melbourne where there's a lot of heating required. Mm. Um, Beyond that, insulation, 
a uh, bit of a dirty word after the home insulation scheme, but it's um, really important. Uh, most homes don't have enough. Mm. And even homes that have enough in the roof will often be uninsulated in the floor and the walls. Mm. Um, so it's important to to do the whole lot. Uh, I liken uh, applying insulation and, and other passive upgrades to, to plugging leaks in a bucket. Mm. Um, it's a leaky bucket analogy. Uh, you know, even if you plug the biggest leak, which might be equivalent to the roof of the house, um, then uh, the... Uh, you know, the the walls and the floor and the windows are other sources of losing heat mm. um, and th- they need to be plugged until you've got a, a tight, um, efficient home. Uh, Is it straightforward to insulate your floor? That sounds like it would be quite difficult to me. Uh, straightforward's not the word I'd use. It, mm. was, it was uncomfortable and messy and I did right. it myself. But, right. Um, so you to get under f- the house. Yeah. But, um, in homes with suspended timber floors, it's messy and 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 uh, tight, mm. um, but uh, it's worth doing. Something you only have to do once. Mm. Okay. And aside from insulation, draft proofing, what about things like uh, hot water systems? What benefits can swapping out a hot water system do for your energy use? Yeah, conventional hot water systems use about a quarter of the home's energy, and they're surprisingly inefficient. Um, we recommend either a solar hot water system or a heat pump hot water system. Mm. Both are good. Um, the, in a climate like Melbourne's, um, probably uh, a really good heat pump is, is the best, um, but solar is also good. Mm. Uh, in a hot climate, um, uh, a, a small solar hot water system is usually sufficient. Um, yeah, so the surprising thing there is uh, heat pumps, which get a bit of a bad rap with plumbers and, and some... Some people who say, for example, that they don't work well in in winter, Mm. Um, the good new ones uh, do work well in winter. So there's a lot of myths out there about them that uh, uh, come from people forming views on systems that were around five, ten years ago. Mm, Yeah, I can only imagine that technology in a lot of these areas is moving very rapidly as well. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Lastly, because we're running out of time now, what about cooking and appliances, which is one of the energy freedom areas that gets a a mention? What can people do there? Yeah, what we recommend is, uh, obviously with with getting rid of gas, we recommend an all-electric approach. Um, And the best alternative to the common gas cooktop, we feel, is induction. Mm. Um, Induction cooktops are something that a lot of people may not have seen, but uh, they're really efficient, they're really nice to use. And if you haven't used one, I recommend that uh, you go and have a look. Um, they, they they give most of the benefits, most of what people see as benefits from gas of mm. the, the fine control and uh, quick, power, to power, heat and, quick to heat yep. when you need it. Mm. Um, but they're easier to clean. They're arguably safer than gas and um, yeah, they look good. Um, they're, they can be a bit more expensive, but uh, it's uh, you save, over, time. save mm. overall and, uh, yeah, the, they can give other cool mm. features that, that you don't get with anything else. Mm. Well, that sounds like we've just touched the surface there of what people can do. Where can people go to to find out more information about the Energy Freedom Plan? Well, like James said yeah. in his interview, yeah. energyfreedom.com.au is mm. our promotion for this whole uh, campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, and go there and have a look. There's some case studies and some guides on, on what to do. Right. And does your own home feature on there as well? 
Uh, yeah, it's one of the case studies. Fabulous. All right. Well, Richard, we'll have to get you back in um, just prior to September when this book is being released. Look forward to it. And thank you so much for coming in. Thanks, Jane. I recorded a talk given by visiting communications expert George Marshall. It was at Tusculum Hall in Sydney. He gave a workshop that day, and here's what I got out of it. His basic idea is that our brains take in all the scientific information about climate change, but the emotional part of our brain isn't up to responding to threats like that, unless the threat is really immediate. So we conspire in a silence about climate change as if we are waiting for the government or someone like Winston Churchill to come and lead us away from danger, or we act as if we don't believe there is really much danger, at least to us. Meanwhile, we really know that we are complicit. We travel in planes and cars, we eat food from mega farms with a high carbon footprint, we export coal and gas to build our prosperity... So it makes us feel guilty and grim, and we switch off. So I went to George's workshop, you know, to learn a bit more about communicating, because in these radio programs I try to switch people on by giving some ideas for climate action. At the end of each show I mention groups they could join up with, you know, and take action together, or even just letters to people in power to uh, alert them that the public really is keen to see some movement. I'm guided by the projects of Beyond Zero Emissions, which researches how each sector of our society could prevent the worst of climate change. But I also do lots of other stories about community action because that's where the cutting edge is and I think a lot of the um, great heroes of our time are out there. George Marshall said uh, we should not focus on future loss it's too hard for our brains to actually focus on. But we can get moving on restoring the loss that we've already got. Uh, there's a podcast on the Beyond Zero Emissions uh, website about Ararat where I went out to visit some carbon farmers and I think this fits into what George Marshall was saying. Those people have planted thousands of, they've planted thousands of trees restoring marginal land and the Hopkins River catchment area. Of course these trees will soak up a lot of carbon too. So restoration was George Marshall's first point. Next he said, that when there is an extreme weather event that unites people like a bushfire or a flood, we should provide the connecting link to climate change not through boffins or academics, but through trusted local messengers. So I thought of a story that I did around Christmas time when the last heat wave, and we got someone from Ambulance Victoria on the program, and he told us how to prevent heat stress and some first aid. And he agreed that climate change means that we all need to get prepared. And each time we get better prepared, we become more conscious that climate change is something to prevent as well. George Marshall is also big on narrative. Now, everyone says narrative these days, and I even try to get people I interview to tell a story because I know stories come across a personal story. It's often quite hard because they're just experts in their field and they just want to tell a lot of information, factual information. George Marshall said that climate, that climate denier narrative has been very compelling, and we know that with Andrew Bolton, various uh, uh, writers like that who really get people to believe in their narrative with greeny villains and environmentalists being in the way of progress and so on. But we can tell a story of positive change. I know this is true because 
when Beyond Zero Emissions put out the high-speed rail report, people were really thrilled. Um, BZE had worked out all the tunnels and bridges needed to get us from Melbourne to Brisbane. They'd even worked out the timetable. And I think we just need to get popular momentum behind this to make it happen. A lot of the local councils are starting to coordinate themselves to make it happen. And all of the plane and car trips that we're used to now will become a thing of the past. Another thing that George Marshall said was it's very important in climate change to have a narrative of cooperation This doesn't mean unity. We don't all have to be absolutely agreed, but we need the help of everyone. Conservatives especially are needed in this, as well as radicals. And I know that's true because one of the stories I did and have followed up several times on was the Protect Our Water, Protect Our Land movement. The country and city people are united in uh, not having farmland dug up for uh, new coal mines and for now for gas, calcium gas that is... uh, Fract. I loved going up to Gloucester and seeing how determined young people and old people were to stop coal seam gas destroying the farmland. And the cooperation they showed was magnificent. You could see they were a diverse group of people. Just last week, they door-knocked 8,000 people in the New South Wales Premier's electorate. It's the largest number of door-knockings apparently done, you know, ever in Australia. And they got huge support for the message of leave it in the ground, just as the Premier goes on approving new coal mines in New South Wales. The last thing that George Marshall emphasised was we must listen. And the reason for that is to keep an open mind. As he said, we need cooperation. We need everyone there. People have their own narratives. They frame climate change in a way that sort of fits in with their values which may not be your values, but the main thing is we need to all cooperate on this. I think it was one of his most important messages. He speaks to evangelical church people in America, for example, who command huge congregations, and he finds out that he said from that that he learned that they don't say, um, oh, you want to join our church, just look at our website. They say, come, come down, meet us, you know, come and Tell us about yourselves and learn what we have to offer. Whereas I think um, climate change groups tend to say, look at our website and and it's rather hands-off and not very engaging. And perhaps the climate movement can get a little bit more into a working relationship with each other so that the momentum is gathering. I think we need a social movement to press for action on climate change. We need to press on every lever, whether it's divestment or locking onto uh, the uh, coal machinery as they dig up new mines it's through parliament and it's through um, just economic pressure but the main thing is not to despair not to give into it not to say the game is lost and if you would like to read George Marshall's book it's called Don't Even Think of It How We're Human Beings Are Wired to ignore climate change. So that was a bit of a rave from me just to tell you why I do this program some of the programs that really back up what George is saying that we need to communicate about all the aspects about climate change and above all I'm very very open to your suggestions uh, about the way I the way we do these programs the topics we choose and especially if you have contacts for people we could interview please contact talk, contact us at radio team at beyond zero emissions.org now sit back and listen to George Marshall speaking at Tusculum Hall on communicating about climate change. Let's, let's start with a brain. We've known now for, well, since the extra we've known now that there are actually two 
parallel processing systems in the brain, but it's become a lot, lot clearer over the last 30 years. Uh, Seymour Epstein started talking about this 30, 40 years ago. We know now with uh, neuroscanning, with neuroimaging, we know that we can actually see it operating in the brain, but there are two, but there are two parallel parts. We could say we have this immense capacity, it's what makes us smart, of analytic reasoning. And that will deal with numbers and numbers and data and symbols. Logic. This is the language of science. This is what makes us capable building an amazing building like this. However, we have an older and we have an, a dominant way of processing information that psychologists would call affective reasoning. Now, affective reasoning is dominated by the processes which are, make far more sense to us. Issues of proximity. Is it here? Is it now? Experience. Have we seen this before? Is this familiar to us? Metaphor? Maybe we haven't seen it before, but there's something we've seen before which looks a bit like it. We have a natural tendency to, to, to lock into similarity. Given a range of material, we will say, okay, it's good enough. Good enough psychology. Good enough. It fits the box. That's good enough. We can make sense of things that way. Social signals. We are constantly scanning the people around us with the signals of what we should think, what we shouldn't think, what is going on. What's important and what is not important? You know, human beings, what makes this amazing is not just the capacity to pay attention to things and make sense of things, but probably even more the capacity to selectively ignore things. And if we couldn't do that, we would go completely mad. We would be unable to deal with this vast, amazing complexity of like Sydney, going down to Sydney, going down Pitt Street. The amount of information and stuff going on around there. We can deal with that. Most animals could not. We can deal with that because we have a huge capacity to attend and selectively disattend to ignore things. So what is important is these signals here are determining for us the processes by which we ignore or we attend or disattend. We have a problem with climate change, which is it has a capacity to not be very good at triggering the things which say, attend to me, and actually be kind of good at saying, don't attend to me. So we have a situation where on this side of, I don't say the inside of the brain, these systems are interlocked, they're in constant negotiations, but we have a set of information on one side which is saying, pay attention to me, this is important, but on the other side we haven't got, we haven't got the match. And story is the key glue of what turns this material into this. Story is the means by which we make sense of things. It's not just a, it's not just a, a, an artistic expression. We know very well through experimental science that if you show if you show people random information, they very quickly turn a story into it. And those stories have their own rules about what works or what does not work, what people pay attention to or not. So stories have rules. That's important. So not only do things have to fit into the story, but we can accept a story which is a compelling narrative pulls us in, even when it's utterly wrong. If it is a great story, it speaks to our experience as a metaphor, and it has the social signals of proof, like people next to us are saying, this is what, this is, they're sharing it with us. And really, in a way, this is the essence of what happens with climate change. You have a bunch of scientists who are, who are coming up with very, very strong arguments on this side. It has to go through onto the other side in order to communicate. It has to, it has to carry the social signals and the story that makes sense. It is entirely possible for highly, highly intelligent, well-educated people to simply create, create socially constructed stories of denial, stories of refusal to accept 
the evidence on this side, drawing selectively on the numbers of the data which supports their argument, and then passing it between each other, creating a social signal, this is what's to believe. And I think it's very important to stress that this side dominates in our, in our cognition. So it is not it is not enough to say it is not enough to say, well, let's have a very strong set of material here, because on this side here, this will this will rule, this will lead. One of the uh, one of the people I had the privilege of meeting was Professor Daniel Kahneman. The nice thing about the book, the great thing about writing the book, is you get a chance to meet people you never normally meet, and you can call them up and say, "I'd like to talk to you." You've got an excuse to meet you. So I have my own. I have my own hero. So Kahneman is one, and it was a great thrill to meet him. Daniel Kahneman, for anybody who doesn't know, he's a, he won a, he, well, he wrote the um, the book uh, "Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow," which has been a huge international bestseller. <laughs> Carlin won a Nobel Prize for economics, but he's actually a cognitive psychologist. But he got it for economics because he said the way that we look at things is biased, and those biases affect our judgment and our decision making. He is the, the king, the leader in the field of, of the cognition of decision making. And I asked him, that's Professor Carlin, I, I, I asked him, okay, what can you tell me about the way that we approach climate change? He said, I think you've got a very big problem. He said, climate change, well, my research, he says, shows that there are some things which we're good at and some things we're not. We pay a lot of attention to things which are here and now. That's to say they have salience and proximity, because we, we tend to disregard things which are in the future. He said, we pay a lot of attention to things which are certain. We tend to disregard things of degrees of uncertainty. And he said, we're loss-averse. That's to say, we do not like losses. And we therefore, correspondingly, we, we demote them. And he says, here we have a problem where this is not just about losses. This is about making a loss now in order to avoid a loss in the future. He says, that's the worst combination. <laughs> not just that, he says... It's about certain losses now in order to forestall uncertain losses at some <laughs> uncertain point in the future. And he says, oh, he says, he says, okay. I thought I'd share that with you. <laughs> Nobel laureates say we're doomed. So, he said, I have to say, he was really, really sweet about it. He kind of took my hand. He said, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I said, look, I don't know. I said, it's just nice to be nice to be you no I'm so sorry I have to tell you I I, I, I can see no hope on this <laughs> somebody said to me somebody later on said to me oh he's just a professional worry I wouldn't pay attention to <laughs> a rival cognitive psychologist said <laughs> he is right this is a fundamentally difficult problem because of the way that it engages with our biases if it was here if it was now if it was a meteorite hitting into the earth those who have degrees of confidence and certainty which would outweigh it. We can imagine any number of variables where we change any of those components we have something much more certain. But there's something a little bit more interesting going on than that. He says we can't deal with this because it involves losses, it's in the future, it's uncertain. It's not a degree to which we actively make it those things. It's not a degree that actually we have set up a climate story that we know will fail. It's kind of very interesting when you do focus groups and you say to people, why do you think it's hard for us when we don't get climate change? And they say, 
Well, I think it's very hard for us to deal with issues which are in the future and uh, <laughs> basically what Professor Carmen said, right? So, like, we know all of this. We know very, very well where those stumbling blocks are. And I think what we do is we create the story to fail. Here's, here's an interesting statistic. This is Maury Poles, a glorious British pony company. And this asks British people if they think climate change is a major threat for future generations, okay? So, do you think climate change is a major threat for future generations? Well, 87% of people. Do you think climate change is a major threat? 69% of people. That means there are significant numbers of people who think that climate change is not a threat, unless it's in the future. Okay. <laughs> so, the number of people who think climate change is a major threat for future generations is more than the number of people who think climate change is a threat. There's something going on there. What it is clear to me is that people are deliberately placing the thing in the future, and in truth they're deliberately exaggerating the cost, they're exaggerating the uncertainty in order to push it away. But this is very revealing. So this is from the CSIRO figures. How big an impact do you think climate change will have? Okay? Oh, and people will ask various levels of where it have impact. You personally, so 20% of Australians think it will affect you personally. Your local area, 31%. So they therefore think there's some little bubble around there, which is going to affect everybody else, but not them. But let's keep taking it out. On Australia, 54%, because they, inside their bubble, inside the bubble of their local area, will not be affected, but the rest of Australia will. <laughs> Interesting. Every level is further away. None of this is supported by science, I have to say. On the world's whole, well, lo and behold, it's more, despite the fact that science is pretty clear that Australia will be the worst affected continent, apart maybe from Antarctica. I talk about how scientists perceive four degrees. I've said it is not nice that we're heading straight for it. There, I've said it. So, what we do is we generate stories that enable us to ignore it, or to reject it, keep it at arm's length, or to shape the issue in our own image. And therefore, what we do is what we, we, it gets filtered through our own worldview and our sense of who we are. So, the stories become climate change. Not the IPCC report, it's for stories, and the stories are the stories are the climate change. And they become real because they get passed, whether they are the right story or the wrong story. Because with repetition, things become real. If you say something to somebody, it already becomes real. Once they've said that to somebody else, they have passed on something with the authority of, of, of the communication. From grassroots to global... Earth Matters, bringing you environmental issues with a social justice slant. We are not convinced that GM food is safe. The ramming of the Adigil recently is definitely the furthest they've gone. They're sort of time bombs, these desalination plants. The government and the oil and gas sector, hand in hand, are playing this down. Tune in to Earth Matters on Sunday mornings at 11. Catch the repeats at 10.30 on Monday and 6.30 on Wednesday mornings. Or download the podcast on 3CR's website. You're listening to 3CR. This is the Beyond Zero Emissions show and our guest tonight is George Markshaw. He's talking about how hard it is for our brains to deal with climate change. We need a villain. Could it be the oil companies, Chevron, Exxon, Shell? So... What's happening here is not scientific proof, although there's plenty of that. There's something much more powerful, social proof. Social proof is what makes things, is the glue that holds things together. And whilst 
I'm kind of talking about this, this leads to this leads to this. Actually, the way it hangs together is far more complex. I couldn't even say what leads to anything else. Because all of these various factors all work together in a way which, to be honest, the only metaphor I can think of is the world climate system itself. A constant set of negotiations of people saying something to somebody else, they pick that up, they pass it to somebody else, it interacts with a personal experience, life experience, a metaphor of some kind, something you perceive, the weather outside, uh, your own experience, uh, your memories of your childhood, all of this stuff, it's extremely complex. But there's positive and negative feedbacks. So a, a lie or a myth can be positively reinforced, it goes out there. When environmentalists take hold of climate change, they put polar bears on it, other people look at it, they say, I'm not an environmentalist, they move further away, they then start to tell a story that says, no, this is a myth, this is an environmental myth, it moves further away. These are positive feedbacks which start pushing people apart. Let's try and unpack all this a little bit. Keeping around the time. Yes, So, here's some observations. And it's hard to talk about a whole book, a whole, a whole, book, a whole lot of issues, so I'm just going to pull out some, some thought points which might go into discussion. The most, okay, so there are theorists who um, have described the pool of worry. The pool of worry meaning we have a limited capacity to worry about things, and we have limited space in that pool of worry. So we can worry more than others, but basically for each of us, that's the amount of space we have, and what do we worry about? If I go out there now into the street and I say to people, you worry about climate change, well, most people will say yes. Not quite a large majority, but most people will say yes. If I say, what are you worried about? Very few people will mention climate change. That in itself is revealing. Climate change is very peculiar. It only exists for people once they're prompted. But they'll tell you lots about it. So we have a limited capacity in that pool of worry for how much people, well, what's in it. And climate change has problems getting in there because what's occupying it, what's hogging that space in the pool of worry are the compelling stories. And they, not surprisingly, are the ones which are here and now and have the social proof and, and have the powerful story. But even more is the enemy, the enemy of the intention. When we're dealing with enemies, you know, so much of our morality is based on enemies with the intention to harm. Kids as young as three can tell, can tell when something is an accident or where there's an intent. Climate change bypasses all that. There's no intention, nobody's <coughs> I cause a lot of harm. I, I, I pumped the equivalent of 12 tons of carbon dioxide into the air coming here and going back to Britain. Which, believe me, I'm, I'm fully conscious of. And the climate doesn't care whether I was coming here for talk about climate change or coming here on holiday. There's a major impact of what I just did. But I have no intention of causing harm. The exact opposite. I'm aiming good. I'm, I'm, I'm planning to do good. Most of us are doing things the whole time. We're providing for our families. We're going on holiday. We're not intending harm. This is very, very difficult problem for climate change. Climate change would be easy if we had an external enemy, for example, if it was caused by, by North Korea, then no, it's North Korea pumping greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, which they know is going to destabilize our, our climate, let's be specific, it's going to destroy gradients across the Midwest. That's what they know what they're doing to North Korea. Because the irony of this is North Korea is probably one of the lowest emission countries in the world. That's However, let us, let us, but that doesn't matter because reality, this is, this is a constructed narrative, okay? I have a friend who wants to put this out and just to see if we can get some traction with the shock jobs in America. North Korea is changing the world climate. Look, if it was North Korea, it'd be dead easy. 
enemy, enemy known, enemy familiar, enemy lots of narratives, uh, lots of metaphors with intention to cause harm. Bang, grouping it down. But of course, it's not North Korea. So we have this problem of climate change, but it's an unbalanced story. It's got a huge, overwhelming threat without a threatener. And that is hard for us. We deal with it as a meteorite, but it's very hard, not sure quite what this thing, where it is, and where it comes, or what it is. And unfortunately, it's the weather which also makes it look very, very familiar. And the problem with this is that it therefore, as an unbalanced narrative, it yearns to have an enemy dropped into it. We look for enemies to fill in. I have to say, on, on my side, my colleagues in the environment movement are busy doing this as well. We're creating our own enemies and heroes and villains with our familiar shape and form where, where lo and behold, it's the oil companies who are doing it. Okay, I'm not in the business of defending oil companies. I've campaigned against oil companies for years. But, you know, when, when I was coming there, I'm looking out of the window of my, of my vast jumbo jet at Heathrow Airport, and it's got the, the truck which is pumping the oil into a fuselage. It's shell. I'm thinking, well, this is like Shell not, Shell not forcing me to go up the stairs on this plane and fly here. Shell, the enemy, the people I'm campaigning against, the people I want to disinvest in, have made it possible for me to come to Australia. Of course, I didn't have to come. There is something much more complex going on there. Now, we might just choose to shape it in those terms, and Shell are doing plenty of things which deserve major appropriate. But it is not a straightforward narrative when you willingly, complicitly accept their product in the, in the course of doing what you want to do. It's complex, and that means we have an unbalanced narrative. We're listening to George Marshall. He's a communications expert, and he's talking about why people fall silent when we talk about leaving the coal, oil and gas in the ground. Why is that? The stories we tell and the silence we use to delay action is his focus. I talked so far about the story, but there's a long story. There's a long story which is actually just as powerful, its own shape, its own rules, its own people. There is a socially constructed silence around climate change. People don't talk about it. You will find this yourself. As I said life is, is one long focus group. You go and ask people, talk to people about climate change, and notice how much conversation just, just dies. <laughs> what happens? It's like you talk with things and just it just swerves off somewhere else or it just disappears or falls into space or sometimes people argue with you. I always welcome that. Because most of the time people say, Oh, what do you do? I say, I work on climate change. They go, Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not saying it's you know, climate change, you know, the what all of the world's scientific institutions and the heads of state, except for a few, say is the world's greatest threat with them. <laughs> Might, like sometimes I, I can't stand it and I say, you know, you might have heard about it and I'm very happy to tell you a bit more about it. <laughs> well, that is because there is a socially constructed non-narrative. There, is a, there are rules about what can and cannot be said, unfortunately unknowingly similar to the ones which occur around human rights abuses, around... Um, around sort of the collective silences that we've seen and we've observed, around race issues, around child abuse issues, that people know. We don't, it's very hard to study or to know the thing that is not said, but you know where the boundaries lie around it. And you know very well, it's exactly what I described, but when you tread into that territory, you know you're going into a space where something's going to happen and it's going to be dropped, you're going to be rejected. So what you do is you don't even go there. Third of people cannot recall 
well, in, in America, Britain, Canada, can't recall ever having had a conversation on climate change in their entire lives. Because they know not to go there. And the vast majority of everybody else has never talked to anybody outside their immediate family and friends. But what surprised me was that even when I went into areas which had extreme weather events, there was a selective silence. In mid-Texas, I went to an area where a third of a town had burnt down in uh, extreme droughts and heat waves. A third of a town burnt down by an order of magnitude, but ten times larger than any previous Texan fast one. And I met a lot of people there. No one could recall from me a single conversation I had on climate change. I met the, the head of a town paper. I said, why are you not talking about climate change? She said, oh, but George, we would if it was of relevance to the people of Bastrop County. I said, Madam, your, your house burned down. She said, oh, no, we're only a small local paper. We don't cover issues like that. Strange. And one of the, um, I, went into, uh, I went into New Jersey. I met this lady here, Diana Long, from, uh, in, uh, she's the mayor of Seabright. Nine-tenths of her businesses were in Seabrights, five months after Hurricane Sandy. Nine-tenths of her businesses were still closed down. Whole swathes of the town just smashed a bit. And there's never a Deborah as like Diana. Diana found a, um, a little sign in the wreckage of a cafe that was down on the, the, on the sands called um, Donovan's Bar. And uh, she found the first two letters of the sign in the rubble after Hurricane Sandy. See, this is a compelling narrative. This is why it's fun. This is why she loves it. So whilst I'm talking with her, she did, did what she does there. She gets it down from the sign. She said, but you know what, George? We can do it. We can rebuild Seabright. We can make this a strong town again. We can bring in the new investment to, 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 to rebuild what we have. I said, that's great. That's great, Douglas. Why don't you go to Washington and say that stuff about climate change? Why don't you go and say, we're on the front line of climate change. We demand action. And she said, are you crazy? <laughs> she said, I'm not going to go and start saying that this thing can happen again. We've managed to rebuild our community around this. We're going to bring an investment. I'm not going to do that. She says, this is a positive. I'm telling a positive story here. She said, I mean, these are her words. She said, you know what? We'll do all that lofty stuff some other day. <laughs> well, what I want to know is if people in areas affected by extreme weather cannot talk about it, and if people who, in, who are affected by extreme weather don't see the closeness of it, and if we can't talk about that lofty stuff until some other day, when can we talk about it? That's what I mean. There's a non-narrative which is created by all these separate bounds of what you can and mostly cannot talk about. So, entire institutions make cognitive mistakes. The United Nations has made enormous mistakes in terms of the process they've applied to climate change by taking, them, I would argue, the metaphor of... Uh, CFC reduction, of ozone depletion, and of acid rain, these two things with compelling narratives of success of people putting together to deal with gases through the use of market mechanisms. And they went, wow, that's great. And these stories had very powerful sense of positive feelings, social norm around it, of people who worked in negotiations, this looks great. And they just got plonked on climate change in a quite aberrant way. Maybe we can talk about this later on. I talk about this in the book. But, you know, uh, as the sociologist Emil Durkheim would say, there's a there's the psychology of the individual, but there's a kind of psychology writ large of, of, so, of society. Societies behave in their own strange way. And groups of people, groups of negotiators, of the United Nations, of entire companies like the oil companies, 
People collect their, create their own internal justifications. People in societies can do horrible things that they wouldn't do individually. I met and spoken to a lot of people in all countries. They are very intelligent, thoughtful, considerate, and many of them very nice people. Collectively, they can do things which are contributing to the, to the destruction of the world. They are part and parcel of that process. But, but they are also creating stories and narratives around their own, their own uh, uh, moral innocence. Uh, carbon capture and storage. They say, you know what? We'll keep digging this stuff up because we'll have carbon capture and storage. They say, you know that. That's, that's a narrative ploy. That's something I want to see the proof of that. When it's up and running, fine. You know what? I think you just need that because that's the <coughs> part of the narrative which makes it possible for you to keep doing what you're doing. But no, they're going to invest a lot in that because they are involved in a collective, in a collective cognitive mistake. And I guess, here we go. <laughs> things that are conveyed between people. I think one of the things we can recognise, for example, is that conservatives, I mean, it's been a disaster, but conservatives have not been adequately involved in climate change. We have a huge partisan divide. In my country, as well as yours, on this. You go out in Britain and you find that, that large numbers of conservatives simply do not think that the climate is changing at all. But the entire thing is a constructive myth. But this has become almost like part of a creed for a certain kind of mainstream British conservative. In America, it's even worse. But this is how different things can look. This is a guy, Rob Sisson, he's the president of Conserve America, which is a right-wing conservative, um, conservative Catholic organization. And look, he's created a narrative which is based around um, the campaign against abortion. How extraordinary. Now, I have issues with this. I don't like it very much. I don't agree with, I don't agree with Rob Sisson's views on abortion, I'll say that. But I'm always thrilled and excited to find how utterly different this story can look like when it's out of, out of the hands of us polar bear huggers and in the hands of, <laughs> and in the hands of people who have quite, quite different values and attitudes. And this doesn't speak to me, but nor should it. It speaks to people who are deeply concerned about those issues. So we have immense, unexplored capacity to reshape and mould this issue in terms of the views of whether you're a Queensland sugarcane grower, you know, or whether you're whether you're somebody out in the suburbs, or whether you're you know, whatever you are, whether you're a business person, whether you're a person of faith, all of these people, whether you're a trade union activist, all of these people can have stories which speak to their own values. And I guess the final observation is to say that. We need to understand how we come to our views on climate change. They don't just appear to us. It doesn't come like it's not some osmosis from a report. We go through a process of awareness, of growing awareness. It doesn't just happen overnight either. It happens a step, a step, a step. We don't understand that at all. Another research shows us yet how that happens. One of the most interesting conversations I had on this was with one of America's evangelical leaders, a man called Joel Hunter. Now, Joel Hunter is extraordinary. He has the 10th largest church in America. 
And I said to him, and he gets climate change. He's a brave man. He gets climate change, that's Joel. And so I said to him, I said, Joel, I'm very interested in this process by which people come to their beliefs. I said, let's, we, know, we know that climate change is a scientific proof. I mean, it's a proven scientific issue. We know that religion is a very, a very personally held and important spiritual faith, right? We know that these are different things. But let us just see if there isn't something in the conversation between the two. Is there something we could learn from you and from what you know about how people form their beliefs? And I'll just share with you what he said and then this will be the last thing I'll say. One thing he said, which I think was fascinating, was that he said, within my church we have a community of belief. And you guys who just give people a leaflet and tell them to go to the website. It is fundamental to how we do this for people who believe something have to come together. Not just to talk about their belief, but to talk about their doubt. And he said, you, you, you have to have no room there for doubt. It's like you either accept it or you don't accept it. But there isn't a possibility there that maybe, as I feel, sometimes I have days when I just go, you know, I'm not sure about all this stuff. And he said, well, we do this. We hold, hold someone's hand and we go through it. We talk about our doubt. We talk openly about it. Maybe later on we can talk, please. I, I hope some of you here will talk about your doubts. Let's recognize and respect that. And let's, what, within the language of a church, then what you do is you then talk about what you believe too. And one way I think of breaking this climate silence is that people openly talk about their conviction as a key part of their activism. I believe in this. This is important to me. You're entitled to your views. I respect that. But I want to tell you about this because I want to change the conversation. Joel said that he came to climate change through an epiphany. And because he is an evangelical, he can use that language. An epiphany is a sudden revelation. I think that happens with climate change. I have mine. I think a lot of us do. A lot of scientists I've spoken to have had epiphanies. There's nothing wrong with that. It's a part of the way that humans reach their views on things. Can we make that happen? Can we work with people? Can we talk about that language? Maybe here in the audience when we have a conversation. What was it that switched you up? Was there some special moment? Was there something which made you suddenly see some truth in this? Because I think that is important. Within the language of evangelicals, they make that happen. They say, step forward, if you want to change your life, step forward and make that commitment. And I think we need to have something similar to that as well. A point where people who have a commitment, they have a conviction, have a process by which they come forward and they say that. Because you know what? We have huge numbers of people, if you ask them, say that climate change is a problem, yet it doesn't appear in their conversations, their voting patterns, their life, anything. So how do we get that? Really, in a way, they have to step forward and say this is important. And the last point is... I think it's very interesting. I don't even know what to do with this. So maybe you can help me. He said, there's no language of forgiveness. He says, all I know is I could not have a faith where I give people a powerful moral message about how they need to change, but I have no language of forgiveness. All I know is I don't know what the language of forgiveness around climate change looks like, but there's an awful lot to forgive, both in ourselves and in other people. So there's going to be a lot of blame from the people coming down the line about what we're doing. So what does that language of forgiveness look like? Because if you go now and you Google climate change plus forgiveness, you'll find nothing. There's no conversation. And you know what? As you can already tell, I am fascinated by areas where there isn't something. Because there's a lot of areas where there isn't something on climate change. 